0: listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsandfords.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumman. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Let's stand as we read God's Word. And those of you online, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning hear the words of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, when the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You may be seated. So how many of you in this room are married and happy? Keep that hand up, guys. All right? Keep that hand up. Uh, The great theologian Chris Rock said that you are either married and bored or you're single and lonely. Ain't no happiness nowhere. You know, some of you have been married for a long time, some of you for a short time. You know, the main tension in every marriage uh, is the tension between the ideal and the ideal and the, the real. Uh, the, the ideal is what you would like it to be, the real is what it is. It's kind of like when you look in the mirror, you, you have uh, the ideal, I would love to look like this, but then you look in the mirror and you have the real, this is what I look like right now. And, and we live in this tension. The tension that we live in is the tension between what we are, uh, the real, and what we want to be, the ideal. And in the fallen world that we live in, the ideal uh, that people have when it comes to marriage is not always God's vision for marriage. Sometimes we have these illusions of this is what marriage should be, this is what a perfect marriage should be. We think that it's Instagrammable, that it's Facebookable, and that you can even TikTok about it. But yet, what, what the world says, what culture says marriage should be is not necessarily what God's vision is for marriage. The culture says that marriage is about me. It's about personal fulfillment. But God's vision for marriage is, we've been looking at this series, and God's vision for your uh, relationships with your husband or with your wife is a relationship that is a lifelong covenant. Not an emotional attachment, but a whole life commitment. Not a secular salvation, finding a soulmate, but a picture of salvation not personal fulfillment, but fulfilling the other person. Not about consumption, but about contentment and care. It's not about my rights and my my wants, but it's about my responsibility. Marriage is not ultimately just about my happiness, but marriage is ultimately about my holiness. And so as we've gone through So many weeks looking at what Jesus taught on marriage, we we learned in Matthew 19 that that Jesus teaches that marriage is not only a good thing, but it is a God thing. What God has put together, let no one take and make apart. God takes a man and he takes a woman and he puts them and he makes them to be one. And this is a picture of God's unbreakable love. And yet, just as Jesus says, what God has put together, let no one separate. Yet we know that what God has brought together, we often try to separate. And so the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, elaborates on what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19 and what Genesis teaches us from the very beginning, and he gives us the key to a holy and happy matrimony. The key that Paul gives us is countercultural, and it's God's design. And here's what you see already. The key to a holy and happy marriage is mutual Spirit-filled submission to each other That pictures the gospel to the world. Now, you say, Pastor, that seems to be kind of very complex. It's not. Here's what it is. The key to a happy, holy marriage is the spirit-filled life. It just is. It's spirit-filled submission to each other that pictures the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at three things this morning. The first thing I want you to see is the self-centered love of self. Now Paul here is writing to a church in Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. It's right there on the coast off by the Aegean Sea, close to the to the nation of Greece. It is a metropolitan. In Paul's day, it was a very metropolitan. It was a mega city. It was probably one of the largest cities in Asia Minor. It was a wealthy city with great socioeconomic disparity. Uh, One of the main facets of the city was the Acropolis that housed the temple to the goddess uh, Artemis, who was the goddess of hunting and fertility. And on the Acropolis, in that temple, uh, was a cult of people. And in uh, the cult of people, that worshiped the goddess uh, Artemis. And there was a lot of tension in Paul's day in Roman society between husbands and wives. And and believe it or not, as we maybe think of it as being a very patriarchal society, which it was, there was in the city of Ephesus a growing uh, feminist movement. And this feminist movement actually came out of the worship of the goddess Artemis. And this cult around Artemis taught that women should have rights and that women should be empowered. And so from this and other kind of cults that came out of that in that region, the cult of Dionysus and the cult of Isis and also the cult of Artemis, were pushing for, in Paul's day, women's liberation. And so the Roman government was doing everything they could to stamp out this liberation movement. And so Paul is not just speaking into a vacuum when he writes here to this church at Ephesus. That there is something, there's a tension that's going on in this major city. And it is a cultural issue that Paul is going to address head on. Now the one thing about Paul that I like, and because Paul is like Jesus, Paul was not a man of his times. He thought for himself, he spoke boldly, and he never minded disagreeing with anybody. And so what Jesus does, or what Paul does here is he takes what Jesus and Genesis say about marriage and speaks into the very cultural structure, social structure of that day. And what you read here in our text is that Paul is actually going to subvert Popular culture in his day, but he's also going to subvert popular culture in our day. And what Jesus, pardon me, I'm so used about Jesus, amen, is that Paul here is not going to side with Artemis. Paul here is going to side with Jesus. And so here we are, we're kind of going right into the middle of a book here that Paul has just spent the first three chapters speaking about the foundation that we have as being in Christ and, and what that means, the blessings of being in Jesus. And out of that, he gives this commands to these believers that because you, have, you are in Christ, you are chosen, adopted, forgiven, that you have been predestined, that you have an inheritance that is incorruptible, unperishing, reserved for you in heaven, and you've been given the guarantee of this inheritance by the Holy Spirit that has enlightened the eyes of your heart. Out of the midst of this, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, as you read here, this appears to be a separate sentence. But it's actually connected to a greater context. See, any text without a context is a pretext for error. And so this this, this phrase, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, co- is connected to his, his command in chapter, eight, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, where he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And so he gives you marks of what it means to be a Spirit-filled person. Now, some of you, maybe you're new to church, you're like, what is this Spirit-filled stuff? Is this that stuff I see on TV where people are rolling around and barking like dogs and clucking like chickens? No. Spirit-filled life is the normal, should be the normal life for the Christian life. And so he says the marks of someone who is filled with the Spirit is that they sing. They sing because they're happy. They sing because they're free. Listen, if you have problems singing, now listen, my motto is this, if you can't sing good, sing loud. So you, you can hear me all over this room every Sunday morning. But the marks of someone that's filled with the Spirit is singing. And then he says the marks of someone filled with the Spirit is someone who gives thanks. But then the last is the mark of someone who is filled with the Spirit of God is someone who is submitting. A mark of a Spirit-filled person is that they lack self-centeredness and they humbly serve others out of love for Jesus. And so Paul says that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then on the hills, at the very end of making that statement in verse 22, he then begins from 22 all the way to chapter 6 to then locate marriage and family around that idea of being filled with the Spirit of God. And so he locates marriage around being filled with the Spirit. Why would he do that? Why is it that this is the time that Paul's going to say what he has to say about marriage? And here's why. This is so important. Because we have to understand that what Paul is going to tell us, what God wants for our marriages, what God wants for your marriage, is something you cannot do on your own. You cannot do what you should do in your marriage by yourself in your flesh. You have to have the help of the Holy Spirit of God. And so uh, the reason why is this, because what I'm about to share is going to be so countercultural, so counterintuitive, and so unnatural, because our primary innate natural response and motive in life is selfish, self-serving, and self-obsessed. You were born a narcissist. You were. See, there is nothing more unnatural than self-sacrifice, There's nothing more unnerving than humble submission because nobody loves you like you love you. And self-centeredness, as we shared last week, is the enemy to your marriage. Because self-centeredness pursues our own well-being above anyone else. Self-centeredness is a cancer. Now, let me give you some signs of self-centeredness, just so that you know what I'm talking about. Impatience. Irritability. A lack of graciousness. A lack of kindness in talking to others. Envious, always wanting a better situation, looking at what everyone has and wanting something better or wanting what they have. A self-centered person is one who holds on to past hurts, holds on to past grudges. That's the marks, it's the signs of a selfish, self-centered person. And self-love and self-centeredness make you blind to your own problems. Because when you look in the mirror, you see, I've got it all figured out. When you look at others, you say, they don't. And what happens is, is that when anyone says anything to you, does anything, you're become you very hypersensitive. You you are easily offended. You are easily angered by others. And what happens is is that when you don't get what you want, when you think you should get it, it turns into a downward spiral of self-pity, anger, cynicism, despair, and fear. You say, Pastor, why are you so passionate? Because I'm talking about me. And I'm talking about you. Because naturally, in our flesh, we are self-centered. So to Paul, in marriage and life, we can no longer live for ourselves. As a believer, we shouldn't live for ourselves, but we should live for others by the power of God. And you can only do that when you have experienced the self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus in the gospel. You can't, this is unnerving and it's unnatural. You cannot do it unless you've experienced the love of God and you cannot do it unless you've been made alive by the Spirit of God. You can't do what he says in verse one of chapter five. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You can't do that. Unless you've experienced the love of Jesus in you. And then you can't do, verse 18, he says, where he says, Do not be drunk with wine where it is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit of God. You can't do that unless the Spirit has made you alive. And so if you have not experienced the love of God, and if you've not been made alive by the the Spirit of God, then you're just going to be another broken, self-centered person with unrealistic expectations. You're going to be that way. Until you come to a place where you repent and believe the gospel. Tim Keller says this. He says, the picture of marriage that Paul gives is not two needy people, unsure of their own value and purpose, finding significance and meaning in the other's arms. He says, if you add two vacuums to each other, you only get a bigger and stronger vacuum. A giant sucking sound. Rather, Paul assumes that each spouse already has settled the big questions of life, why they were made and who they are in Christ. Until you can come to that place where you understand why you were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and who you are in Christ, you're going to be one giant vacuum. And your name doesn't have to be Hoover or Dyson. Without the gospel... Without the Holy Spirit, you and I lack the strength and the power to overcome our own self-centeredness. And even with the gospel, and even with the Holy Spirit, I still struggle. But without it, I have no, I have no hope at all. So Paul's vision for marriage that we're about to really dive into is to show the same self-giving love mediated through the Holy Spirit to our spouse. You and your power do not have the strength to love your spouse the way that God wants you to, but only in the strength of the Holy Spirit can you love him or her the way you're supposed to. So the first point here is we see the self-love, the self-centered love of self. But the second thing I want you to see here from Paul is the spirit-filled sacrificial love of the husband. So as we think about God's design, and, and as we've talked about this, God made men and women to be image bearers of Him. And so therefore men and women are equal in His eyes. They are equal. So so it's not that man is is greater than woman or woman is greater than man. They're equal in the eyes of God. But yet they are not equivalent in how they submit and serve each other. God gave men roles and women roles. And so gender is not a tool of oppression but it is a gift of expression, expressing the image of God in a different way that shows a greater story, the story of Christ in the church. And so gender, again, has been over the years been used as a tool of oppression, but in God's creation, your biological sex is not a tool for him to subjugate you if you're a woman or to empower you if you are a man. And so what we're going to do is I'm flip-flopping what Paul does and we're going to start with the dudes first and then we're going to get to the dudettes, all right? So verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives as how? Christ loved the church. So the spirit-filled, born-again man is called to love his wife as Jesus loves him. How does Jesus love you? Jesus loved you by giving himself up for you in sacrificial love. Paul tells the husband to voluntarily surrender his rights and relinquish his power to care and love for his wife. So for the man, it wasn't about man's authority. It's about man's responsibility. Now in Paul's day, this was completely countercultural. As I shared earlier, it was a patriarchal society, which means that women were seen as inferior to men. This was both in the Greek, Roman, and Jewish minds. As a matter of fact, a prayer typically prayed by a Jewish man every day was this. I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. Women in this day were seen as almost people. They had absolutely no standing in the court of law. They couldn't give a testimony. Uh, Women uh, were often abused. Uh, Female babies were either aborted, abandoned, or sold into sex slavery. Uh, Women were called in this day to stay at home, care for the kids, but yet the men could go whenever and wherever they wanted to go and get whatever they needed, especially when it came to their sexual needs. And so when Paul says you are to love your wife with a sacrificial love, this was a complete just opposite view of that culture of that day. But yet in our culture, what Paul has to say about responsibility is countercultural in our day because most men, not all men, but most men, especially uh, as we're seeing happening in our culture today, are stereotypically, disproportionately childish. I'm not saying all, but I'm saying most. That most young men growing up fail to realize and take on responsibility You have bands out there. You know what a band is? It's a boy man. Or man agers. Those who have the body of a man, but the mind and the attitude of a teenager. John Bryson, who says, he said this, he says, We have a generation of males that never grew up to be men and take upon the role of servant leadership. He goes on and he says, Boys blame, men own. Boys take, men give. Boys complain, men figure it out. Boys pout, men endure. Boys wish, men do. Boys start, men finish. Boys stiffen their necks. Men bend their knees. So what Paul here wants us to do is he wants to change the narrative. He wants us to change the question. And here's the original question that most men have. And probably most of you men have been thinking this question a lot lately. How can I get what I want from her? Even he said amen. Perfect timing. I love kids. Mom and dad are probably mortified up there. But anyway, how do I get what I want from her? Paul wants it to change from that, how do I get what I want, to this. How do I give up my selfishness and submit to the character of Jesus and meet her needs? He says here, you are to love your wives. Husbands, love your wife. This word love is not eros, not erotic love, but agape, it's God's love. It's sacrificial love. It's not just an emotional thought, but it's a choice, an act of the will, and a decision. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His only son. Jesus came and he loved us. How? With total humility. If you look at the life of Jesus, he washed our feet, he died for our sins, and he left glory so that he can bring us to glory. And so he loved us, Jesus loves us, regardless of our condition or ability to love him. It's a sacrificial love, it's also a sanctifying love. Again, we we don't have time, we could spend another sermon series on these verses, and so if some of you feel like you're shortchanged, I'm sure there's a lot of other great sermons out there on these texts. But here he talks about sanctifying love. Verse 26, the reason you love is so that he might sanctify his wife and present her in splendor. That's what Christ did for the church. He died for us, washed us with the water of the word so that he might present us in splendor. You know, most people, most men, pardon me, view love as being lust. To be honest with you, when most of you were married, probably more percent than you would like to admit was lust. Unless you were fulfilling that lust before you got married, if you know what I'm saying. And so for a lot of people, they see love as dirty, not so much clean. Lust is dirty, not clean. And so what most men are looking for, and and I can say this even in my own heart, and when most men are looking for a wife, they're looking for someone that will make them look good, feel good, And fulfill their vision for their own life. In other words, I want somebody that's going to make me look good. I want someone that's going to make me feel good. I want someone that's going to help me pursue the vision that I have for my life. That's what most people are looking for in a spouse. But what if my job as a husband was to shepherd the heart of my wife to be the woman of God she was created to be? What if it's not about me fulfilling my vision for me, but what if it's about me helping her be the woman of God God's wanted her to be? See, for years in my marriage, I got that backwards. And I still struggle with it. But one of the things that I'm very proud of is is seeing, especially in these recent years of marriage, of my wife growing as as a woman of God finishing some things, some goals that she had educationally, uh, starting and actually going to seminary and growing as a godly woman, pursuing Christ, ministering to others, discipling, even though many times it's outside of her comfort zone. It's a joy. (laughs) the greatest things I get to experience as a husband. Here's the question, man. What good is it if you are growing spiritually but your wife is not? What good is it, men, if you are thriving, but your wife is trying to survive? You as a husband, if you look at what Jesus does here, and what what Paul talks about our role is, is that your job as a husband is to provide for your wife's spiritual growth and development. Just as Jesus washes us with the water of the word, we should wash our wife with the water of the word. We should encourage them in Christ. We should speak the word over them. We should pray for them, and we should pray with them. And it's intimidating. I still struggle praying with my wife the way I should. And the reality for some of you men, you're hearing this, you say, well, pastor, my wife is way ahead of me spiritually. She's like way ahead of me spiritually. And so because of that, you feel intimidated because your wife may be more spiritually mature than you are. But listen, Jesus didn't say wives, wash your husband with the water of the word. He said men, wash your wife with the water of the word. And so for you men, you got to get in the word. And I'm telling you, as a church, we're never going to go further. We're never going to see real things happen until men begin to to decide that they want to be godly men and men of God and live for Jesus. And I thank God for godly women because if there wasn't a lot of godly women, this church wouldn't exist. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love. i got to go hurry. Satisfying love. I know you men are like, all right, we're waiting for the women. (laughs) Let me hurry up. Let me hurry up, hurry up. Paul, and I'm going to give you the quick version here. Love your wives as you love your own body. Paul assumes that you love your body. That if you're hungry, you feed your body. If you're dirty, you wash your body. If you want something, you get it. And so... You you try in the best of your ability to satisfy your needs. And so Paul says, in the same way, you should love your wife. And so you should ask her, honey, how can I serve you today? Now, why are we talking about taking care of your body? Why it's important to take care of your body is because good health is foundational for everything you do. So if you don't feel good, it doesn't matter. You could be... Anywhere, you could, you could be in the lap of luxury with anything and everything you ever want, but if you don't feel good, it's worthless, right? The same is true in your marriage. If your wife is not healthy, if your marriage is not healthy, it's going to be really hard to enjoy good things, right? Our marriages, therefore, must be a priority just as the health of your body is a priority, And so, just as men, we nourish and cherish ourselves, we should nourish and cherish our wives. And so, when we wake up, just as we think about taking care of our needs, we should look to take care of her needs. And so, one of the questions that we should ask ourselves, again, this only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit, right, men? One of the questions we should ask ourselves is this, how am I nourishing and cherishing my wife? Today, great book, Five Love Languages, talks about physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, time, great book. What are the ways that speak your wife's love language? Men, this may mean hugging your wife. One of the things that April and I do, and you're going to say, this is TMI, but it's not TMI. One of the things that we do is I try every day to hug my wife, every day, even if she doesn't like me. I try to hug her, all right? (laughs) Give her a hug. There's something biochemically, the oxytocin is released. There is something that happens. Hug your wife's men, and, and don't look for anything else. Just hug your wife. Can I get a witness, women? We don't need any testimonies this morning. Listen to your wife. Do little things to help your wife. Tell your wife you love her. Get nice things for her. Pay attention to her. Ask yourself this question, does my wife feel like I am cherishing her? This week I asked April, I said, honey, do you feel like I cherish you? Don't ask that question, so we'll move on. (laughs) Listen, women need to feel loved. Women need to feel cherished. They need to feel like they have your attention. Guys, I mess up with this. They don't care about what you're saying to them. They just want to make sure you pay attention. They want quality time. They need a gentle touch. They need to feel like they're a priority, not a nuisance. You say, well, pastor, she's just as selfish as I am and maybe more. Well, listen, you can't control her. You can't fix her. But you can work on you. And if you work on you and your selfishness and ask God to help you, it may soften her heart. With her selfishness. See, it's all about responding in selflessness rather than reacting with selfishness. A reaction is based in the moment and doesn't consider the long-term effects of what you do or say. A reaction is often survival-based, knee-jerked, without thinking. It's mirroring what the other person is doing. So if your wife yells, you yell. If your wife is angry, you're angry. That's reacting. And I'm going to tell you something, it don't work. Responding is thoughtful, slower, based on information. This is where I mess up. That thinks about the long-term effect. Of what you're about to say. Responding is a gentle word. That turns away wrath. A selfless act. A kind gesture. And a tempered answer. Only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only. Now let's get to the women. Amen. The Spirit filled submissive love of the wife. Now this won't be as long. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Paul does not say that women are to submit to all men. Just to who? Their husband. It's a military term that meant to line up under command. It's not servile groveling, but voluntary deference. It's an attitude of readiness to yield support to your husband, who is sacrificially loving you to present you in your splendor. So what does that mean practically? What it means practically is that when decisions are made in the family, the man is to break the tie in a split decision. Okay? So the wife submits her final decision to the man to make the best decision for the interest of the family. Remember, this is the guy who's sacrificially loving you. One guy told me once that, his wife, and he made made a a deal. Easy decisions, she gets. Hard decisions, he gets. He told me in the years of marriage, he's never had any hard decisions. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not to all men, but to your husbands. Show voluntary deference and attitude of readiness. John Tyson said this. If your husband comes to you and says to you his wife, Woman, submit. The wife should respond, Man, die. Right? Submission does not mean... That a woman cannot ask questions. It does not mean she cannot share her opinion. It is not the unquestioned obedience of a woman. It's a posture of humble service that means a willingness to listen to your husband, to follow your husband, and to respect your husband. He says, "Woman, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You say, pastor, my husband isn't easy to respect. He's hard to respect. Well, listen, your husband may be hard to respect, but Jesus is not. And so your willingness to respect your husband says a lot about your respect and love for Jesus. So sarcasm, negativity, nagging, emasculating, and berating your husband are not going to encourage him to want to sacrificially love you the way he's called to do. It's not going to work. Verse 33, he says, make sure that the woman respects her husband. Listen, I'm a man, I'm a husband, and I'm a dad. No husband ever changed for the better because they were nagged to. I was expecting a lot of amens on that one. (laughs) Being nagged is like a death of a thousand cuts. Solomon, who had a lot of experience in women, (laughs) says in Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are the same. No man gets married to live under a leaky roof and endure water torture. Right? God wants the wife to be a refreshing wind for her husband. Right? Now again, it's mutual, spirit-filled submission. And women, your husband's not going to be perfect at the beginning. But if he's trying, even if it's awkward respect the effort and encourage it. So if he plans a date night that is slightly better than a McDonald's drive-through and a parking lot, then praise the Lord and tell him how much you enjoyed being with him. Women need and should be cherished. Men need respect. Men Cherish your wives. Women, respect your husband. 81.5% of men, recent survey, do not feel respected by their wife. A question that a wife should ask herself How can I serve my husband today? What does he need from me that will help him to be the man of God that God has called him to be? If you go to your husband today and ask him, What can I do to help you today? Most men would say nothing, literally nothing. I don't need you to help me today. I love you, honey. Is this a trick question? No. (laughs) But when you ask your husband that, it lets them know that you care for them. Wives, ask yourself this question. Is my husband thriving because of me or is he trying to survive in spite of me? Again, it's mutual submission. It's mutual submission, okay? And, 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 and look, there, there, are, there are men who berate, and there are men who nag, there are men who use sarcasm and speak down to women, and there are women that use the same, and it's a result of the fall because of that selfishness that we talked about earlier. But the only way, the only way you could ever do this, you have to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. See, marriage is not always about your happiness. It's about your holiness. If you want to learn patience, get married. Right? If you want to learn self-control, get married. If you want to learn patience and gentleness and kindness, get married. And the fruit of the Spirit will come in your life. It only happens through Spirit-filled submission that pictures the greatest love story ever. You know, I'm not a very good actor. I have actually performed in a Broadway musical. Annie, I don't know if you knew that. And and I know I'm not good at it. But I want to give the best picture I can. Husbands, wives, you're in a great drama that's a picture of the story of redemption. And you may not be good at it. But you can try. But here's the problem. Trying to love your spouse... The way the Bible commands, on your own, just sets you up for failure. See, you can't do. I can't do it on my own. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. I need repentance. Men, women, the best thing you can do today is to tell your wife or your husband, "You're sorry. I'm sorry. I'm upset. I'm sorry. I'm angry." I'm sorry. You need the gospel. You need Jesus. Jesus is the perfect spouse. When you know he loves you, you'll be able to love your spouse. Because your spouse cannot be the main source of love in your life. Jesus has to be. I'll end with this. Ray Ortland writes in his book on marriage. He says, Every Christian husband who grasps the gospel will love his wife as himself. And every Christian wife who grasps the gospel will respect her husband as her head. His love for her, with her respect for him, will display the eternal romance of Christ and the church, bring the only lasting hope that exists in a brokenhearted world. It's the gospel. The gospel says you're so bad that Jesus had to die, but so loved that he was willing to die. And the only way you're ever going to make it is you have to have experienced the love of Jesus in your life. And experiencing the love of Jesus is very humbling. Isn't it? David Ireland, who was married to a beautiful, sweet lady, he was diagnosed with a horrible, terrible, terminal disease that ultimately rendered him to be quadriplegic, confining him to a wheelchair. After his diagnosis that he and his wife just received, his wife also received that same week the news that the couple was going to be having a baby. He knew that he only had a short amount of time and was also a writer, dictated a series of letters in 1974. Yes, it's an old book, but it's called Letters to an Unborn Child. He wrote to the child... In his wife's womb, a series of letters, because he knew he would probably never be able to see his child. In one of the letters, here's what he wrote. Your mother is very special to me. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation from their wives from, for taking their wives out to dinner. Let me say that again. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage, put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the chair, twist me around so that I'm comfortable in the seat, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get in the car, drive off to the restaurant. He says, then it starts all over again. She gets me out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the chair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant. Then she takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, reverses the same routine. And when it's over, finished, with real warmth, she'll say to me, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner tonight. He says, I never know how to answer your mother. To receive the love of Jesus is very humbling. And as we saw a picture of the gospel, that's what Jesus does for us. He loves us when we can't do anything at all. And then he even will say, well done. There's no greater love than the love of Jesus. Amen. And if you've never experienced that love, would you experience it today? Would you bow with me, Father, in Jesus' name? what I couldn't say, what I didn't know how to say. God, would your Holy Spirit do that work? Father, as we we need the Holy Spirit to help us to love our spouses, God. Help us to see that when we were weak and hopeless, helpless, we were destitute and dying. That you and your great love, a love that we can never earn and do not deserve, you loved us, God, with an everlasting love. And God, give us the strength to love our spouses. As you have loved us in Jesus. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.